The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974, Part 3. Of course, we are socialists. Friday the 17th of May 1974, day three of the Ulster Workers' Council strike. That day found divided councils in the UWC beginning to surface. The Ulster Workers' Council members, all trade unionists, many war veterans suffered the same affliction that most Belfast people suffer, lack of confidence. Indeed, most apart from Barr, never lost their shyness in front of the cameras. They felt themselves frauds and when they saw the devastating effects of their work on the world they knew, uh, like all men without confidence, they severely overcompensated in the scope of their strategy. And the masterly direction of their plan was beginning to be realised by policy planners, government officials and their senior civil servants who were advising them. The power cuts threatened the facts far more reaching than the consequences of closing down industry, commerce and the domestic sector. And they were getting longer each day. Eventually power cuts of 12 hours or more became the norm. By Friday, an even greater problem, that of sewage control, became a major issue in the government briefings to the press. And by Friday, the newspapers, including the Belfast Telegraph and Newsletter, were full of it. A lack of electricity also meant that pumps did not operate for substantial periods each day. The Belfast Telegraph was declaring that the sewage system was critical, predicting widespread flooding is likely to occur because during power cuts, pumping equipment would be hit and if there were heavy rainfalls, the sewage would flood the streets and become a health hazard. Nearly half of the sewage was already in an emergency, being discharged into the watercourses with a natural effect on wildlife. This too, the strikers were warned, would bring water restrictions. Many of the rural areas got their water from boreholes, also operated by the electricity-powered pumps. And on that Friday, the crisis on the streets was becoming stark as the strike continued to choke the province. Even though the UWC at that stage were not targeting the petrol supply, the barricade stopped most of the tankers getting through. Even when petrol stations were supplied, the power went off for protracted periods and the pumps simply stopped working. The big name petrol and oil companies, Esso and Taxico and the like, took their tankers off the road completely, reporting a confused situation, but an intention still to serve essential users such as food processing plants, hospitals, abattoirs and petrol stations. In many areas, car drivers were limited to a quid of petrol. Many began to hoard petrol, exacerbating the shortage as the panic kicked in. The real truth was that the tanker drivers were not turning up for work. Key foodstuffs such as eggs, bacon and bread were not getting through to the shops. Farmers and agricultural industry were suffering. Pictures were shown on the pages 
of the papers of 20,000 chicks being slaughtered in heaps. Pigs reaching abattoirs could neither be slaughtered because of the increasing power cuts nor fed because the animal feed was not getting through. Thousands upon thousands of gallons of milk were poured down the drains by farmers, although when the Northern Ireland office agreed to compensate them, the pressure was taken off and many of them began to support the stoppage in full fervour. When essential shops opened, queues bought out the little bread, plain and pan loaves, which also people shared with their Lowland Scots cousins. Soon there was no milk or bread, and people resorted to hoarding dried milk and flour and canned food. The more intrepid were going to the farmers and getting churns of unpasteurised milk and distributing them for ready consumption because the fridges were rendered useless. The UDA were said to be selling milk at 4p a pint on the shankle, and soon that too was running out. Because at the street level, nothing was getting through. People resorted to tin food and potatoes, hard to cook even when the power went off. And yet, journalists who were led into the Protestant working class ghettos four days later, Fisk among them, reported that the Protestants, mostly women, were upbeat, that morale was high. And those being interviewed were accepting every hardship with a view of making themselves heard. Fisk would report that the government line about intimidated workers was now untenable. These people he was seeing in the heartlands, men, women, young people, children, were upbeat and enduring every hardship stoically, prepared to sit it out. Joe McCann, president of the Farmers Union, pleaded with the Ulster Workers' Council to alter its policy and complained that at the street level, the essential users list the UWC had issued meant little. Food supermarket chains started selling off their frozen foods. It took little power to run their freezers for 24 hours, but the threats of imminent shutdowns achieved their maximum intended effect. As I say, these men with little confidence, looking at the enormity of their venture, had overcompensated. And so there it stood. Power supplies, food supplies, postal supplies, in the main, simply cut. Postmen were either not allowed to pass or feared running the gauntlet of barricade after barricade. The UWC had added post office to essential users when it was realised gyro checks were not getting through. The chairman of the Northern Ireland Postal and Telecommunications Board, Patrick Manson, hated the UWC and their strike and refused to negotiate with the strikers. Instead, he had a statement typed out, then rang their Belfast 6511031 number and pointed out how the denial of benefits to the vulnerable would hurt any sympathy for their cause. He even left his number for them to ring back. Within an hour, orders were given and the postal service was added to the list of essential users. At this time, his board also ran the phone system but nothing could be done about the telecommunication system powering down due to the power cuts, which are now increasing from four to six hour intervals. What the UWC agreed to do was to add to the list of essential users, the engineers and their vans to enable emergency calls. And the strikers under the orders of the UWC were queuing in their thousands outside unemployment benefit offices to clog up and collapse the system. Under the law in 1974, strikers got no pay, but those subject to lockouts which prevented their going to work, which was what the Northern Irish government were insisting on calling this rebellion, were entitled to pay in the second week after their wages for the previous week had run out. In this time, people lived from pay packet to pay packet, much like today. Thousands upon thousands, men and women, virtually all working class, were manning the barricades and agricultural vehicles were blocking off the country roads and approaches to the urban areas. Whilst the army patrols on foot and in ferret scout cars or Land Rovers or Saracen Pig armoured vehicles warbled along upon powerful tyres negotiating their obstacles or flitted through and squeezed between corners of the barricades like shadows or ghosts. The strike went on.
The Ulster Protestant protesters manning the barricades, many in combats and dark glasses, other youths with bright shirts, boots and flares, and women, old and young, in the chic shapes and colours of the mid-1970s, watched the spectacle by now impassively of a British military grown impotent. Pickett still stood watchful. Sentry still stood at the factory gates across Ulster. At the International Engineering Plant on Montgomery Road, Belfast, 80% of the workforce had answered the UWC's call. Yet outside each day, 20 to 30 pickets stood at each of the three factory gates, jeering those who went in. A motorist entering the gates got a fat lip. In the main, the pickets were non-violent. The Telegraph reports, there were reports of other confrontations between workers and pickets at factory entrances in East Belfast, but most were understood to have been on a minor scale, with some cat calling it people turning up for work. The UWC had threatened to bring Ulster to a standstill and by Friday, that is exactly what they had done. Strangely though, at the UWC meeting on the Friday, there was a fear at that time was not on their side. This state of affairs had to be maintained, but for how long could their supporters put up with it? Harry Murray would be proved right in his assurance to the press at the outset that the Ulster people would go down to one meal a day and no meal a day if they had to. Ulster Protestantism had found a voice and were not going to squander it. Throughout the strike they remained steadfastly loyal and other segments of their community seeing this eventually came to join them, eventually into an almost monolithic solidarity. And this was not a mistake, this was what the UWC wanted. Maximum, minimum, impact. And the panic about food supply was the key to this. The previous Saturday they had even tried to get the BBC to report their warning about food supplies to disconcert the masses and provoke panic food buying. But the BBC were not interested. But now the BBC 10-minute bulletins, which everybody in crisis hit Northern Ireland listened avidly to, were waiting with bated breath to report each of the UWC's new communiques, where petrol could be found, and what roads were open. And even worse from the, their point of view as Fisk asserts, the UWC realising that the strike was gaining a momentum all of its own did not even bother to put up barricades now. Even the bars closed on Thursday in reaction to women pouring the hoarded bags of flour on their husband's head for sitting drinking pints of beer while they manned the barricades were reopening at 6pm courtesy of the UWC. Hotels, many of which had long-term residents, were still open. As the Belfast Telegraph observed, on a low-key basis, one hotel manager with Forna's Hotel explained, we obviously cannot turn them out onto the street. Lorries of men went from building site to building site and found the great majority shut the workers having long answered the call of the UWC. At others a threat or a warning phone call enforced the strike, but there were reports of an incident on one site where a refusal was trumped by a subsequent arrival of more men on lorries, whilst the contractor stated that mass men had entered their yard for heavy lorries to use in the barricades. And at this time the executive met again. No one, not least the Northern Ireland office, had expected the Protestants and Ulster to go into revolt. Indeed, no one had expected them to retreat everywhere. They were challenged them to maintain cat-and-mouse tactics among disciplined ranks that had been so lacking the year before. The Northern Irish government executive met that Friday and its ministry gave their doleful reports and descended into bickering. Merlin Rees and Stan Orme were unusually present for a time. Rees was there to tell the members that they had to make a compromise on what formed the main bone of contention, the Council of Ireland, the gateway of influence given to a foreign nation would take. As a matter of urgency, given the loyalist fury, nothing was agreed. The minutes were scribbled and pressure was put on all of them by the British government.
That same day, Glenn Barr joined a deputation of loyalist politicians, including Bill Craig, Harry West and Reverend William Beatty, standing in for Paisley, who was watching events from Canada on the pretext of going there for a funeral, but who many suspected was sitting it out. All met Reeves at Stormont. Glenn Barr came, of course, in his capacity as vanguard member of the Assembly, and the UWC deputation itself did not turn up. Instead, to help set the context for the meeting, they had threatened to close all the power stations by 8pm, but retracted the threat later. Reese had been expecting them, and had his plans to yaw them with a show of guns. Again, despite the suggestions of the four that they could be employed as negotiators, Reese and Orm, when they finally met their deputation, were resolute. There would be, and could be, no negotiations with what they saw as unelected fascist thuggery. And by the time they met, that chance was already gone. Rees refused to take industry off the grid in return for maintaining 60% of the power supply. He made it clear that there was to be absolutely no dialogue, talks or negotiations with the UWC. And having turned his face against them, the delegation emerged empty-handed to the waiting press. And Bill Craig announced to the reporters, There are sufficient strikers in support of the strike to ensure a serious crisis for this country, but the government will do nothing about it. It looks as though they, the British government, are about to bring Ulster to its knees. Fisk reports Craig prophesying apocalyptically that all essential services will be gone within 24 hours. Sammy Smith, the UWC propaganda minister, took the cue and stated that all emergency workers were now to be on a 24-hour alert. Reese, in his turn, had been busy that day and had issued an uncompromising public statement that read, and I quote it in full, Those responsible... For the organisation and implementation of this dangerous and coercive campaign must realise that they are acting against the interests of the people they claim to represent. They are seeking to dictate the government. I must make it clear that there can only be one government which is responsible to all the people in the United Kingdom through Parliament at Westminster. The situation is that if it is not possible to maintain output at the power stations, we shall be faced with a total blackout of the province. If such a situation developed, the hospitals would be unable to function, lives would be lost through the lack of operating theatres, food supplies would be curtailed, and many other consequences would follow. This is the stark truth which the whole province must face. During that afternoon, Reese was receiving briefings on further strike actions. Dockers were now refusing to unload supplies of fruit and vegetables in the harbour. Diaries were closed for lack of power and an estimated 220,000 gallons of milk had gone down the drain. Disturbing pictures in the press were showing the suffering of animals. At Kulkira, the other main power station with the heavily Catholic workforce, the Protestant workers had walked out in protest at Hutchinson's factory in the Mayfield estate still working at full tilt in their view to the detriment of power supplies to the bakeries in Protestant areas in Londonderry. The two coal-powered factories in Belfast, also supplying the grid, were shorn of supplies of coal, and even Ballylongford was struggling to maintain power at 60%. The power cuts therefore got longer, and it was a great reminder, reinforcement, and democratiser of the suffering, because even Rees, Orm and Faulkner, and the legions of civil servants, and the people of the province, all suffered equally. In the afternoon, Rees had given a press conference in which he reflected on the poverty of his family in his childhood during another general strike, but added that we never used a gun. Fisk describes his address as a long, emotive, sad affair, where he resorted to type, playing the sympathetic socialist. But the press conference he goes on to relate 
was occasionally disturbed by a young civil servant who several times entered the room and took a sheet of paper to the Secretary of State. Reese's rambling description of the talks was also interrupted by a telephone at one of the windows. One after another, the journalists were called to the phone to talk to their London or Dublin offices and it was only then that they realised what was written on the sheets of paper being given to Reese. It was the steadily rising death toll of Europe's worst car bombing in Dublin and in the tiny Irish border town of Monaghan. At the same time, Faulkner, as Anderson tells us, was still in a meeting with his ministers. They had ranged and reported over a number of topics. The tariff repayment on the rent and rate strike by Catholics, which the SDLP had supported. The fact that now more people were interned than when the SDLP entered government and the modifications proposed to the Sunningdale Agreement. The cabinet meeting gave short shrift to the issue of the UWC stoppage, confident at the time, the quote Faulkner, that the widely held view was that the lack of support evidenced by the amount of intimidation necessary would inevitably bring about the collapse of that strike. Paddy Devlin, the SDLP minister, in a fit of sanctimonious was even writing out a resignation letter. Then as Don Anderson relates, suddenly the door opened and a piece of paper was handed to Faulkner. Faulkner looked shaken and then it was read out. Dublin had suffered multiple car explosions. Over 30 people had been killed and in these circumstances Devlin froze his resignation. The Dublin and Monaghan bombings were the largest single loss of life up to then in the Northern Irish Troubles. At exactly 28 minutes past three, a car bomb exploded in Parnell Street. The second bomb went off in Talbot Street near the intersection with Lower Gardner Street. The third bomb went off at 32 minutes past five on South Leinster Street near the railings of Trinity College. No warnings were given. This was an attack aimed at people, not property. Bystanders rushed to help. The emergency response were on the scene within minutes. There had been a bus strike and there was a heavy preponderance of young girls trying to find a way home. The heavy traffic caused by the strike caused a delay to the point where well-meaning folk resorted to bundling the still living into their cars and took them to hospitals, alerted to be on standby, into a scene that most eyewitnesses described as an abattoir of the trust and slaughtered. Arms and legs were put together to make recognisable bodies. At around 58 minutes past six, a car bomb weighing 159 pounds went off in the border town of Monaghan. Clearly a diversion to allow the bombers to get back over the border into Ulster. The total of dead in the worst bombing up till then in Europe was 34 or 35, depending on whether you count the stillborn child of Martha O'Neill, whose husband Edward was killed outright in Parnell Street. The 22-month-old son of Colette Doherty was found wandering the street after the explosion, relatively unharmed. Do we count among the number of dead the mother of Thomas Campbell, who died of shock six weeks later on, on receiving the confirmation her son was among the Monaghan bombing dead. Many of the dead were mutilated and many more, counted in the hundreds, again had their lives destroyed, vanished in the ghosts in plain sight, for when the world moved on, they were forever rooted to the date and place of the loss of the people who made their lives, and so the horrors went on and on and on. Several of the UWC leaders' fiscal relates publicly expressed their disgust at what had occurred. Many Ulster Protestant politicians, including Faulkner, in expressing their unconditional outrage at the slaughters that day, also pointedly referred to Dublin, now witnessing the horrors that the people of Northern Ireland had had to endure for the last five years. 
and yet no cross-border agreement on combating terrorism could be found while the killings, murders and maimings were limited mostly to Ulster. Most of the UWC leaders assumed it to be a British Army false flag operation to discredit them. And if any of the UVF members knew, they kept it to themselves. Sammy Smith was to go completely off message when he made the comment, I am laughing at them. We are at a war with the Free State to the disgust of everyone else. And rumours said he was subject to a punishment beating later on for those words. Strangely, the reaction in the Irish Republic was not directed at loyalists, but focused on condemnation of the IRA. Liam Cosgrove, the Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland, amid the refusal to hold the National Day of Mourning, which they had in the wake of the Bloody Friday atrocity in Belfast, out of solidarity, stated, The blood of the innocent victims of last Friday's outrage and the victims of similar outrages in the North and in England is on the hands of every man who has fired a gun or discharged a bomb in the furtherance of the present campaign of violence in these islands. Just as plainly as it is on the hands of those who parked the cars and set the charges last Friday. In our times, violence cannot be contained in neat compartments and justified in one case but not in another. Jack Lynch of the opposition, Fianna Foyle party, shared the revulsion and pointed to the men of violence. Every person in every organisation, he said, which played any part in the campaign of bombing and violence, which killed people and destroyed property in Belfast, Derry and any other part of our country, and indeed Britain, over the past five years, shares the guilt and the shame of the assassins who actually placed those bombs last Friday. Our country, he said, as he included parts of Northern Ireland. But was that not the whole point? The reverberations and fear of future attacks did force the Irish government and the winding in its knack into a realisation that its reach had not only exceeded its grasp, but it brought the madness of Ulster into the heart of their capital. And the warning was clear, hands off. Anderson postulates correctly that it took at least 27 men to orchestrate those atrocities. In 1993, the UVF finally claimed responsibility, stating that they had perfected the car bomb to the point that no other agencies were involved. Their joint enterprise in this horror was for a purpose, though mostly lost to history. Remember back on the 13th of May 1974, the day before the Stormont vote, four days before the outrages, the day before the stoppage itself, Harold Wilson had addressed the House of Commons, revealing an intelligence coup against the IRA. The previous Friday, the army had raided a house on the Malone Road, which revealed the planned position of the massive car bombs in Protestant interfaces intended to cause mass deaths and maiming of Protestants on their way to work. After firing all the buildings and houses in their retreat, the IRA would establish fortified strong points. The map covered all of Belfast. And the IRA had admitted that although the plan was genuine, it was a plan for a doomsday scenario only. In Portadown, Fisk had said, and I quote him, Details of this plan had been studied with care by UVF officers. If that is true, and it is likely truth will never be forthcoming, then Wilson's flair for publicity and the British desire to show the IRA up as calculating murderers may have unforeseeably resulted in the murder of so many Irish citizens on that Friday evening. On the Tuesday, three days before, the UVF reacting to the IRA admission, the documents were genuine, stated that this was no more than a cynical ploy to go the UVF back into violence, but assured their listeners that they were not taking the bait. Clearly they did, and soon they were prescribed again. Certain UVF leaders were immediately suspected, but there was no hard evidence. Reese had one of the suspects and turned. David Irvine, a young UVF man in 1974, 
would later describe the atrocity succinctly as returning the serve. Small consolation to the young girl decapitated instantly on Talbot Street. Or, quote, another who was blown through a basement wall a few yards away and two more girls blasted into a shop window and so mutilated that their bodies fused together in the heat of the explosion. Or, among others, the two babies instantly murdered in the blast. Only after they still lay and claimed the next day did the authorities realise their parents were also in the morgue alongside them, their entire family wiped out. And so it went on. And the bombing had unintended effects. The Irish government, their opinion of also formed from frequent SDLP briefings, were utterly disconcerted. They refused Lady Wicklow's well-meaning attempts to bring dried milk to the children of Ulster. They refused the on the right the attempt. And when Derry Catholics sent a tanker into the Republic to break the UWC embargo, the Irish government again failed to force the oil companies to assist. In the face of the oil companies' refusal, born out of their terror, at the prospect of their installations being targeted by Ulster Protestant terrorists. That tanker went back empty. Over the years, people including the Irish judiciary have gone down rabbit holes looking for a motivation and means for the bombings. The question for me is what motivated at least 27 men to carry out this determined atrocity? And Fisk at the time points to an answer in the timing of the attack. In Northern Ireland, the explosions had little impact upon its affairs to a people inured to unscrupulous atrocities on a daily basis. This was simply another bomb blitz among many. Back in Belfast, the Mexican standoff continued. And now we come to the role of what we call the moderates, and they are crucial to this story also. The moderates, mostly Protestant, were wiser councils who had stood off and now decided it was time to try to intervene. One of those, and chief among them, was Brian Garrett, the leader of the Northern Irish Labour Party. A Belfast solicitor, he had lived among Protestants and could divine their resolve not to give in. At the beginning of the strike, he had called on the British Army to smash the barricades. By Friday, however, he was wising up to the reality of what was happening around him. He had heard from his trade union friends that the power workers in Ballylumford were 100% behind the strike, to the point of cheerleading it and stealing people to stick it out. He heard from his personal friends and workmates of the general Protestant sentiment that people, if he did not actively support the strike, were agreeing with its aim. As a lawyer, he smelt the wind and divined where this confrontation was headed. This was nothing like the February 73 stoppage labelled Ulster's Day of Shame. This was a hardened resolve that he knew was a new force on the landscape. As head of the Northern Irish Labour Party, the NILP, he had been involved in supporting Sunningdale as a sister socialist party he had access to Orm. The NILP had been the only real force of opposition under the old Stormont regime. With the coming of the civil rights campaigns and the creation of the SDLP, which became the natural home for left-wing Catholics, the NILP had in effect been hollowed out. The news of the atrocities in the south of Ireland spurred his actions. On Friday the 17th of May, Garrett tried to find a way out of the impasse and along with his party secretary, Douglas Muldoon, contacted Reese's officials in the Culloden Hotel and asked for a meeting. He was disturbed by the fact that he could see the attitude of ordinary Protestants hardening and feared the Dublin bombings were merely the beginning of a new intensified sectarian bombing campaign. They contacted Martin Reid, senior official in the Northern Ireland office, and went to see Reese face to face. As Anderson states, Garrett and Muldoon told Reese that Stormont should be prepared to open negotiations with the Loyalists. 
with the Ulster Protestants, particularly in circumstances where the army were not to be used to the fullest extent. Reid asked how Rees, the Secretary of State, could negotiate with the Ulster Workers' Council, a self-appointed body allied to the paramilitaries. According to Fisk, Garrett warned that public opinion would swing behind the strikers. At this point, the Under Secretary of State, Stan Orm, the man accused of being too sympathetic to republicanism, arrived. This was a man who, obsessed with the fascist nature of loyalism, derided it. According to Fisk, Orm declared, We are going to break this strike. I can tell you this, you're wasting your time. There is no question of negotiations with these bigots. People are not going to bomb their way to the conference tables. It was a poor analogy, says Fisk, to mix up strikers with bombers. And Garrett told Orm so. And as Orm accused Paisley of only saying he went to Canada for a funeral to lie low and await events, Garrett told him plainly that they had misjudged the mood of the Protestants. Then the minister, says Fisk, put his arm around Garrett's shoulder and said, Of course, we are all socialists. You know we're not giving in to fascists. Garrett suggested that such an attitude might create more fascists than left, but they didn't give up. Garrett returned home and telephoned a number of concerned, like-minded people and asked them to meet him the next day. Among those who met were David Rowlands, Director of the Community Relations Mission, Dr Gareth McClure, a paediatrician, and Bram McGuigan, Head of the New Ulster Movement, a cross-community, well-meaning, but not very influential group. A senior trade unionist from the shipyard, Sandy Scott, also attended. A Protestant trade unionist, Sandy Scott, MBE, was held in high esteem. He was deeply opposed to the strike. He had been honoured for his actions in 1969 when the small minority Catholic workers feared to turn up for work, fearing sectarian attacks. Scott, along with the senior conveners, had called a resolution at a mass gathering of workers to condemn sectarianism. And then the union officials went to every Catholic house and persuaded them to overcome their fears and return to work in safety, which they did. Sandy Scott plays an important part in the story and he shows the calibre of the type of people these moderates were. Scott had watched the workers leave Harlem Wolf on the Wednesday and saw no point in protesting at that stage. But concern now at the abyss where the intransigence of both sides was taking them all, especially the vulnerable. These men tried to act as go-betweens, not really sure what they could do. Garrett and Rowlands arranged another meeting with Rees through James Allen at Stormont. The delegation of moderates included David Rowlands, Mr McClure and Mr McGuigan, and this time Peter McLaughlin, a Faulknerite Unionist Assembly member. On their way there, they dropped into UWC headquarters at Hawthorne Road and were led in by the UVF guards. Garrett explained at the outset that he did not support their strike but was concerned about the power outages and the risks to the vulnerable. And it was therefore his view that some dialogue needed to be opened up to avoid further suffering. For that reason, he told them, he was on his way to speak to Merlin Reese, the Secretary of State. Harry Murray seemed pleased, but non-committal. Garrett came away, he later said, with a view that there were divided councils on where to go from there, when looking at the enormity of what they had already embarked on. At Stormont, they were greeted by the senior civil servant on attachment to the Northern Ireland office, who seemed to be hiding from Rees. The truth is, as Anderson says, Rees had refused to see them. There would be no negotiation. Rees's view was the same as Stan Orm. He promised, however, to deliver their messages and speak to Rees over lunch and telephone them with the outcome. And he did that just before 4pm. 
and the response was as predictably intransigent as ever. Reese relayed to them through his official. He was pleased to note that the Ulster Workers' Council did not want to cause any further hardship and that the best way to achieve this was simply to return to work. Reese does not recall any of this in his memoirs, by the way. Utterly deflated, Brian Garrett dejectedly returned to the Ulster Workers' Council members on Hawthornden Road. The reaction he got was not what we expected. And Fisk concisely describes the scene, writing that Garrett found Barr, Harry Murray, Andy Terry, Ken Gibson and Bill Craig and the rest in session in a packed room. Bill Craig managed to have a brief word with Garrett outside and when he was told there was no success he said you better go in. As Garrett opened the door he never imagined the extraordinary reception he got. He recalled later, Barr was looking at me and then the whole crowd began to clap. It was as if my arrival represented the entrance of a theatrical actor. He recounted his failure to the packed room and it was plain Reese had taken none of Garrett's attempts seriously. In fact, he had been utterly dismissive. But his view was that up to that point, the UWC was divided as to what to do next. They had considered act asking for an intermediary shortly before that, but never admitted it. Ken Gibson remained silent. But as Fisk says, Harry Murray expressed bitter disappointment. Billy Kelly said little, but interrupted ominously to announce that Reese would be made to crawl to the UWC. Undeterred, the Northern Ireland Labour Party members created a memorandum which looks today, in the light of history, as no more than common sense, and then spent all Saturday and Sunday telephoning all the moderates they could find, trying to drum up support for a dialogue between the two sides to try to break the inexorable Mexican standoff that was taking them into the abyss. Their main concern was to take electricity out of the argument and to resume full power. The people they rang that day were academics, members of parties, councillors, people from the medical profession, community and charity workers, anybody they thought that would be sympathetic. All those interested were to meet in the Quaker Meeting House in Belfast on Tuesday the 22nd of May.